Well, I must confess as we come to this passage that uh, not so much the, well, there was a, an element of surprise this week as I was uh, considering um, this passage. I had a clear sense in my mind where I wanted uh, or what I th- believed and I still do. That is the, the, the main point that is being made to us in, in seminary. They teach us about uh, the main point of a passage. You, do, you need to discover what is the, the, the main point of the passage and you need to preach it. And so often I don't follow the, 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 what the seminary taught me. But in this case, I, I had a clear sense. No, this passage is about this. And then as you spend a week studying, reading commentaries, reading uh, sermons by other pastors, you realize, did I get it wrong? Because one thing that I've realized that, uh, is that quite not a few of commentaries and, and uh, pastors that have addressed this passage in the past um, is that they, they take a completely different approach which I believe is wrong as we come to this passage. So usually I, I, I try to play safe and, and uh, focus on, uh, uh, on being within the tradition that we belong to. But I think this time I'll, I'll go a little bit outside of it. Because yes, this passage speaks about temptation. And yes, there is ample uh, instruction for us on how to handle and how to come uh, uh, face temptation. But that, that, that is not the point. We may draw application from that. There is plenty of practical help for us as we live our lives looking at this passage. But the point of this passage is not that when you face temptation, if only you have the correct verse of the Bible in mind, you will be able to overcome it. That's not the point that you are to, be, to take away from this passage. And yes, I'm not saying that you shouldn't know your Bible. And, and, and I'm not saying that knowing our Bible will help us in living holier lives. But that is not the main point here. And that is so frustrating. That so many great men, and I wouldn't name names, but so many great men that I look up to and admire have, have not really, at least in their sermons or in their commentaries, uh, addressed what is going on here. And I think it is clear for me, we're not being presented with a roadmap of how to deal with temptation. We're being faced with him who overcome, overcame temptation on our behalf. It is a mysterious passage, no doubt about it. It is a, a, a passage that leaves us uh, with our minds spinning. How is it that the Son of God, the incarnate second person of the Trinity is able to be tempted. How is it, uh, how can he ever be tempted? Our Lord was sinless. It is made emphatically clear, even in the passage that we read from Hebrews at the beginning. But nonetheless, he was. He was, he is our great high priest. He had a humanity like ours, but he is perfect. He is sinless. He was and is without sin. And that is the point that is being made for us here. The point that is being made to us here is to showcase, to to put Christ on on the spotlight by Matthew to say, 
Look at what a savior he is. How perfectly fitted he is to perform the work that he has come to do. This, this, this son of God incarnate. After being baptized. Being brought to the wilderness to be tempted. And overcoming where everyone else failed in the past. It is a battle that is going on in this passage. And it is in this battle that our Lord, not ultimately, we know that happens in the cross and on the empty tomb, but this is one of those battles that happened before the winning of the, 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 the finishing victorious battle. This is a battle that showcases what he's about to do throughout his ministry, ending up on the cross. It is practical, don't get me wrong, but to see this passage as just a practical uh, passage for us to take some principles to apply it in our own lives, it is a huge disfavor. I would argue it is indeed criminal not to see what we are meant to see in this passage. So let's talk about this, this passage. Let us look. Our Lord Jesus is being brought after this a glorious uh, event at his baptism. He's being brought into the wilderness. That's the context of the temptation. Our Lord enters into the wilderness as if entering into a field of battle. On this wilderness, our Lord meets with Satan face to face. And it, it doesn't happen by accident. He is led there by the Holy Spirit and he will conquer it is in this wilderness that he conquers Satan, where, where our father Adam failed. It was our father Adam that failed when he first was tempted. And here is Jesus being brought to the wilderness to face off with Satan again as our second Adam. Where Adam failed in the covenant works, now Christ comes into the wilderness and he rises victorious to establish the covenant of grace. And he's fighting this battle for our sakes. And he's there fighting the devil for, to save us. You see, there is uh, the fact that, as Paul says to the Romans, we are, we're not so much given to Christ, but Christ conquers us by his work on, during his life. And his atoning sacrifice on the tree. He earned the right to have us. He rose victorious. He fought for us. And, we, and he was taken there. To battle with the, the evil one. To battle with the devil. To defeat him. The one who would have us and sift us like wheat. And have our souls. So he goes into, into the field of battle, even here at the beginning of his earthly ministry. Not by accident. It, just, it, wasn't that, it just so happens that he, he went there and this happened. No, there is a design. It was the spirit that led him there. And he went there to fight on our behalf. It was the spirit that led, us, that led him there. Notice that this temptation comes immediately after the Lord's baptism. 
the heavens opened, the, the, the Spirit of God descending upon, upon the Christ uh, as a dove, the voice proclaiming, this is my Son in whom, I'm, in whom I'm well pleased. It is at this moment, at the height of, of this, at this mountaintop experience that Christ is led by the Spirit and is tempted. And yes, I, I know I said it was criminal, criminal, but it's not wrong to draw practical things from here. It is often that as we, we get to the mountaintop experiences that the temptations are stronger. And whenever we feel like we're very good, that we are, that we are standing, we need to take heed lest we fall. After great honors, there is clearly a, a sense of expecting uh, a great humbling, or we should be aware of that coming. And but notice, as I said, this is not an accident. It is not Jesus stumbling his way into temptation. There is a plan by the Father. This is a part of the Spirit's work. It is the Spirit that leads him there. And this is not to be taken lightly. It is the Spirit that leads Jesus into temptation. So when Jesus later in just a few verses in the book of Matthew, he teaches the disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation. He is not just saying those words just, because, just for the sake of saying them. He knew what it meant to be led into temptation. This comes from a man who himself was led into temptation. He is saying, I know what it is as the sinless son of God to engage in deliberate divine combat with temptation. Pray not to put in the same place. And don't you be so arrogant to think that you can enter into combat with Satan. You see, a lot of preachers, and I'm not saying that these, uh, this was in any of the, the sermons I read, but I've, uh, there is a sense that I think is so wrong, that, that you hear people speaking about being tempted by Satan. This is not a, a, an ordinary experience for any kind uh, of ordinary person. I'm not saying that people weren't tempted. I, I tend to believe when, when Luther, uh, in his account, says that he, he faced off against the devil, that actually that was happening to him. But that's not normal. That's not ordinary in the Christian life. What Jesus is experiencing here, it's... I wouldn't say unique, because I don't have any authority to proclaim it as unique. But we are not tempted by the devil himself as Jesus was, ordinarily. Most often it is our own flesh that we fight against. And notice another thing. Jesus comes to the wilderness. He's tempted, not at the beginning of his fasting period. It's when he was, had finished his fasting it's after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. Like Moses. Again, Matthew wants us, uh, the Spirit inspired Matthew to uh, put these things into words so that we would notice that this doesn't just come out of thin air. 40 days and 40 nights. No, Elijah, Moses, they had a period of fasting of 40 days. They fasted. In this way, in the wilderness. And Christ had to, fa to fast in this way. And Christ fasted, uh, not only as the Catholics uh, do it in the Lent period. It's, 
it's always quite amusing that they say that we've, we have Lent in Roman Catholic countries because uh, our Lord Jesus fasted as well in the wilderness. But then it's, it's just during the day and it's just you refrain from meat. It's like if you want to go to, if you want to use this as a justification to, to your Lent period, then just go all the way. If you want to fast, fast like Jesus fasted. If that's your justification, fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Absolutely no food. You can have water. But they don't, they don't really listen to these kind of things, do they? But he was physically drained. It was at the end. He was spiritually strengthened, yes. But he was drained. And that's when Satan comes. At his weakest point. After he had completed his uh, work of fasting for 40 days. Which so often is how temptation comes to us. It's not when we, we're doing the work. It's when we finish and you kind of go, oh, I kind of deserve this. I've, I've done this so well. And think about how this compares to the temptation of Adam. We are meant to see this. We are meant to see how Christ is the better Adam. He is the perfect Adam. Think about how this compares to that. Adam, in the garden, he was tempted by Satan with food as well. We'll get to that. But he was tempted. But he wasn't, in, as far as we know, suffering from hunger. He could eat of every fruit of the tree except the one in the middle of the garden. There was food available for Adam everywhere. It was only the one tree that he couldn't. But our Lord was in the wilderness with no supply of food. And you can imagine, we will get there, but you can imagine the intensity of the first temptation. Forty days, forty nights without eating, without any food available. He probably still has to trek his way back into a city to be able to eat. And here comes Satan. Always the opportunist with this temptation. And again, if we are comparing to Adam, Adam was tempted one time. He fell. Our Lord Jesus faced off with, with three temptations from the evil one. But the results are so different. We're meant to see, contrast, and compare. Adam, where Adam fell and, 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 and misery and, and, and death came into the world, Christ rose victorious. He gained a victory. He was successful in the combat in the wilderness. So this is the contest. He was needful for the Messiah. In order for the Messiah, the promised one, the king to come, as Matthew would want us to call him, the, the one that was to save and deliver man from their sins, it was necessary they should encounter and overthrow the spiritual enemy that brought so much misery into this world and to destroy his works, as John says. And reclaim the whole earth for God and for heaven. The second Adam, if he is to establish a new creation, a new mankind, a new covenant family, he needs to win in this way. And he needs to come victorious in this manner. But, and this is the context of the temptation. There is also, and we'll, we'll address that towards the end, there is also a clear, a clear sense that Christ is, is, is relieving the history of Israel as well, as the true Israel. But we'll, we'll leave that off towards the end. But let's talk about Satan a little bit. Consider the context of temptation, uh, but let's talk about Satan. 
He's not some kind of mythological figure, at least as, the far, as far as the Word of God and the Bible is concerned. He's not some kind of just, uh, um, as some today would call him, archetypal an, uh, enemy, just a mythological figure. It's not that he's real, it's, it's just a figure of mythological speech, a way of the Bible uh, condescending to, to its readers. No. The Bible does not present Satan as a, as a figment of someone's imagination, uh, an allegory of sorts. The, Satan is real. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 10. In verse, uh, let's look at those three verses. In verse 3 is called the, the tempter. He is called the tempter, the one who comes to tempt. As someone who is uh, wise and cunning. In verse five, he is called uh, the devil. He he accuses. That's what it means. He is the accuser. Isn't often like the the way the devil works? First, he tempts you. Oh, it's okay. Nothing wrong. God didn't really say this. You can have this. And as soon as you do it, he then comes in and accuses. That's why he's called the tempter, and he's called the accuser. He comes in. Oh, now you you've seen what you've done that. What would your father say about what you've done? In verse 10, he's called Satan, the accuser, the adversary. The, the accuser, devil, Satan, the adversary. And he is he's ad- the adversary of mankind. He is the adversary of God and his people. He is the adversary ever from since the start. His goal is our destruction. His goal is our loss. And here, Satan, the adversary, enters into conflict with our Lord. So what are the tactics that he uses? As we talk about Satan, what tactics does he use? We have... We see first in verse 3, the the first temptation in verse 3. He came in and he tempted Christ to mistrust, to distrust the Father, the Father's providence. He comes in and he says, since you are the Son of God, seeing that it's not so much that he is, uh, the if there, it's not so much if you are the Son of God, kind of like Satan doesn't really know, he's trying to test. He knows, but he's, he's asking in a sense, a rhetorical sense, well, since you are the Son of God, sin, seeing that you are the Son of God, command these stones. Tell to these stones to become bread. You're famished. Seems like God is not going to, your father is not going to supply for you here. You have the power. You turn these, 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 these stones into bread. Provide for your own hunger. Distrust the father. Perhaps your father has forgotten you here in the wilderness. Perhaps you will not send anything on your way. Surely God the father who, who led you here, but he's going to leave you here to die of hunger. Verses 5 and 6, we have the second temptation. He takes them to the holy city. 
he sets them on the pinnacle of the temple. And if you have seen uh, representations of the temple, you might be asking, where is the pinnacle of the temple? Uh, and there's quite a lot of argument about this uh, in the commentators. There, there never was any pinnacle, but the, the Hebrew sense of the word, or the Greek sense in this case, in the, in the New Testament of the word, is just a wing of the temple. So most of the representations that we have, and I, we, I believe them to be accurate, uh, the temple is a big, let's say, like this, but then it has two wings to, uh, to the side. And that's what most of them agree to be the pinnacle. Some of them would say it's the front entrance, but the pinnacle was the high point. The east wing, uh, uh, the, the south wing, the, the temple was facing east. The south wing was the, the wing that was the highest, the, the side of the temple that was the highest. In fact, Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, speaks of this wing, uh, not to do with this passage, but speaks of this side of the temple as being so high that people could not see the bottom. They would get dizzy just getting to the, to the, to the pinnacle, what we are calling now the pinnacle, and look down. They would get dizzy from the height because the temple was built... Uh, if you know pictures of Jerusalem, you see that the temple is built on the mount. It's a temple. Uh, uh, there, there's a Muslim uh, mosque there as well now. But it's built on the mount. And the temple was built uh, towards the precipice or close to the precipice. So in that wing, you would be able not only to see the height of the temple, but further down. And that's where they say, uh, and I tend to agree, that the, Jesus was taken I believe physically, although there's a lot of argument if this was just a spiritual uh, experience, but I believe physically taken there um, to this cliff, uh, to this top of the, the temple uh, with a cliff. And he says, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. And here he's cunning, he even uses the scripture. He tells him, he, he just it does not misquote, but he leaves out uh, quite an important uh, piece of detail. But he even quotes scripture, you are, you, he will charge your, his angels over you. In, the, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You just told me that you trust in God's providence, haven't you? You just told me that you, 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 you don't distrust him. So throw yourself now. If the first temptation was uh, a temptation to distrust, or here the temptation is to trust too much, throw yourself down. If indeed you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, he tempts Christ to presume on God's goodness. To do what is against his law. To test him. And this word test will, is important. Because otherwise it seems weird. The, the answer that, the, uh, that Jesus gives. Uh, it is written. Again, I, I love how Jesus says these things. Uh, responds to these. It is written literally in the Greek. Is, it is stands written. It's not just it is written somewhere. It stands that's, that's the literal translation. It stands written. It is valid even now. You shall not tempt or test. It's another appropriate translation. The Lord your God. But we'll get to that. And the third and final temptation. He tempts the Lord Jesus in verse 8 and 9. Again we see his tactics. 
now he attempts him to alienate his father's honor. He says, well, I'll give you everything. Why is it that you have come into this world? Is it, is it to, to, to inherit the world? I'll give you everything. He kind of presumes that he has the right to do that, but we won't get into that now. But, but he says, I'll give you all of this if you will bow down and worship, if you will fall down and worship me. He knew, Satan knew what, uh, if not the full plan ahead, Satan knew that what the Lord Jesus was coming to do would involve pain, suffering, anguish, agony. Uh, he would involve uh, trial. And he says, just do away with it. I'll give you all. No pain whatsoever. I'll give it all to you. I'll give the kingdoms and their glory to you. You just have to worship me. How much easier is that? You won't have to go the way of the cross. I, I don't know. I don't believe that in, in that sense that, uh, that Satan would. But, but you won't have to go this way of, of suffering. Jesus knew. Satan appears to offer him a shortcut to glory. Isn't that what temptation so often is for us? We know where we're going, and we just want to take a shortcut. We know that the road is so hard. I just want that, and I, here's a shortcut to that. Here's a shortcut to, to, this, to this good that I want. I don't think Satan could actually give this to Christ, but he, he, he's the father of lies. He can't lie about it. He presents what is evil. And, and still today, temptation comes to us, whether by the devil, his minions, or by our own hearts, uh, comes to us in this way, pre presented as a, a, a shortcut. You do this evil, but actually it, it, it is all good on the other side. You just avoid all the painful process. You just avoid all the, 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 the struggle. You avoid all the bitterness. That's how Jesus, uh, that's how, how Satan uses uh, temptation. Just, you don't feel fulfilled in your marriage. Just go over and just go and have this little pleasure on the side. And then your marriage will be fulfilled. It's just a shortcut to it. Instead of fixing it. Instead of working in it. That's how Satan works. He virtually is offering him. A, cross without, a crown without the cross. He's saying, you want the crown? I'll give you the crown. Forget the cross. You need the cross. I'll give you sovereignty without the suffering. I'll give you authority without the agony. That's what he's saying. And our Lord answers him. We, he answers him. Verse 4, verse 7. It's helpful when you have a, a red letter Bible in this. In verse 10, he answers him. And the response from the Lord comes from his book. To every temptation that Satan 
brings, he responds, it is written. It stands written. He goes back to scripture. He depends on scripture. He asserts the authority of scripture. Quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, which so often is a book that is uh, under attack by critics, as a book that is uh, unhelpful and, and all of that. Here Christ says, no, it is foundational. So what is it that we learn from this passage? I have five things. And five lessons, not about how to deal with temptation. And again, I, I don't want you, if, if you go home and if you feel the need to hear a sermon uh, by, by some of these great men, I don't want you to go, oh, they, what they're saying is wrong. They, it is not wrong. So I'm just focusing on a different aspect. I want to know what this passage tells us about our Lord Jesus. What are the five things that it tells us about him? Number one, that the Lord Jesus was the is presented to us as the new Adam, as the perfect faithful man. Where, where Jesus, where Adam was tempted and failed, Jesus is tempted and wins. Where Adam and Eve uh, failed in the garden, as the representatives of the human race, our Lord Jesus, he does not fail his test in the wilderness. And every human that is under his headship now is no longer under the condemnation of sin. So you see how this is vitally important to, to, the, to the work of salvation. Second, a little bit, a bit, a little bit longer here, but second lesson or second thing that we learn from, about the Lord Jesus is that he is the one true Israelite. I think you, you've noticed up until now, I've been emphasizing it up until now in the book of Matthew, that there is quite a big, strong uh, uh, reliance, I believe by, by inspiration of the Spirit, we all should, by Matthew on uh, going back to the Old Testament, going back to the, to, the, uh, to the five books of Moses and to relive that. It's the story of the genealogy of Jesus. It's, it's the, the, the killing of the infants, the reminding us of Exodus. It is the, 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 the coming of the wise kings. There is clearly a sense that Matthew is reliving the history of Israel. And Jesus is presented to us as a true, perfect Israel. Jesus' temptations revisit, in this sense, Israel's temptations in the wilderness. Where Israel failed the tests, Jesus passed them. He answered Satan's three proposals again with words from Deuteronomy. Which is the, 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 the giving of the law the second, for the second time. It is words that are meant to be told to the, to the new generation that has come out of the wilderness to remember where their forefathers failed and why it took them 40 years in the wilderness. It is that temptation about food. There was a temptation there about food. And what does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone. Quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. It is the temptation about knowledge. Jump from the temple. Jump from the temple. And you, and you will, and I'll give you all, all of, uh, and, I'll, and God will care for you. Jump from the temple. 
and, and God will uphold you. What was the temptation? One of the temptations and one of the failings of the Israelites. It was grumbling against God. That God's providence was just not there. He brought us out of, of Egypt to make us uh, and our children die of thirst. They were about at one point to stone Moses in, in the desert. They tested God in the desert. And what does, I, what does our Lord Jesus respond to this temptation? You shall not test your Lord your God. Thereby proving himself as a faithful Israelite. Where, where the, the Israelites failed in the wilderness and they tested God, Christ did not as the true Israelite. It is a temptation to worship. If anything, it is quite difficult not to see it as you read the history of the, of the people of, of God. Is that they time and time again fail in the, in, in the first commandment. They fail in all of them, but the first commandment is the one that they break the most often and the most egregiously. They, they have idols. Not long after the, having been taken out of Egypt, they, they are building a golden calf. They fall into idolatry. And what is t Jesus tempted with? Idolatry. But he overcomes but not only is, is he the, the true Adam or the better Adam, the true Israel, he is also the Lamb of God. If you look at the context, this is at, right at the beginning of the, uh, of the gospel. The, right at the beginning of the gospel story, you all, we notice that the, each temptation was offering to Christ a path to glory with no suffering. A path to, to, to fulfilling his calling, apparently, with no blood. Think about the reaction to all of these uh, uh, temptations from the Israelites. Had Jesus fallen into temptation? Think about it. If he would use his own power to turn these stones into bread, he could draw in the thousands in fact, uh, throughout his ministry, as he was doing miracles, thousands were drawn to him just because of his mighty works. If he, sub if he succumbed to the temptation of, of uh, turning the, the, bread, uh, the stones into bread, he would draw thousands. If he jumped from the temple in the middle of Jerusalem and, and, and glided down into the ground... What do you think would be the reaction of all those Israelites watching? His fame would be spread abroad. He would draw thousands. And although I don't think that uh, Satan was really get, promising or offering him something that he could give, same thing with the third one. He was being tempted to receive what he came to do with no pain or suffering. And to all of these, Christ said no, because he was saying yes to the cross. Because he was saying, I'm going to that cross. That's the only thing that will save my people. Instead of Satan's crown, he took the cross. Instead of Satan's uh, makeshift sovereignty, he took the suffering. Instead of the, the tempter's um, 
authority he took the agony of the cross. Fourthly, not only the lamb, but he is presented to us as the lion. The lion who comes and rises victorious. The lion who defeats this Satan in conflict. He won. It is a battle. It is not the end of the war. It is not the cross. There is still quite a long way to go. But here is already showcasing that he has authority. He tells Satan, Satan, go away with you. I don't want you. Showing that in fact the authority was his. Satan no longer bothered him. At least for a little while. At least um, up until the, the, the last week uh, by overtly being present. You see, again, let's go back to Genesis. What was the promise that God made? What was the, the, the prophecy made by God? That there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. That there would be enmity there. What we see here in Matthew, enmity. Strife, fighting, the seed of the woman, the promised seed of the woman fighting against Satan. And now that Satan is defeated, he will still use his minions. How many times the Pharisees tried to kill him? How many times the, 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 the Pharisees tried to tempt him, to test him, to ask him those difficult questions? This is an ongoing battle here. But here we see him as victorious. And fifthly, and finally, and I think that is the main point that we are meant to see. We see Jesus as our high priest. As the one who, although was tempted in every way as we are, he knew no sin. He knew no sin. And I think the author of Hebrews is the one who gives us clearly the the interpretation of what's happening here. He says that we have a great high priest, one that in every way was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He, the, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2 that he was made in every way, like, in every respect like his brother's. He is the one who is tempted. He is the one that is as we are, but yet he's without sin. He did not come into this world as some kind of Superman figure. He was a man like we are. A normal man. Come to save normal men. He thirsted. He hungered. He was despised, rejected, scorned. He was uh, shamed. He was spat upon, embarrassed, and abandoned. All of these things, all of these things are not inconsequential accidents that happened through the, in the life of our Lord Jesus. He was led to them. He was his life's goal. He was his mission. He had to endure these things on our behalf so that now he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And you might say, yeah, but he didn't sin. How can he sympathize in our weaknesses if he hasn't sinned like we did? Yeah, that's the point. He endured temptation to a, to a degree that we will never have to endure because we crumble and fall. 
because we are still sinners. All that tension that Paul speaks of in Romans 7, the things I want I don't do and the things I don't want, those I do. All that, oh, wretched man that I am. That is the point, that although he is tempted, he does not know sin, so he can be our high priest. He, unlike the other priests who had to atone for their own sins, our Lord Jesus, he knew temptation to a degree that we will never know because we would fall into sin much, uh, much sooner than, he, than him. Uh, he is sinless, but he is able to sympathize with us because of that. He knows what temptation is. And he knows the cost of overcoming temptation. And he overcame temptation on our behalf. So that he would go to the cross as the sinless one. As the one who knows no sin. In order that he would become sin on our behalf. That we may become the righteousness of God. That is the only hope that we have. If he, if he was tempted and sinned, then, then, then he's no savior. He's himself in sin. But because he is sinless, because he faced temptation as we did, or even to a greater degree than we did, and he rose victorious, his victory is our victory. And if you are in Christ, brother, sister, if you are in Christ, you have in him a friend who is in every way able and willing to be your rock and your stay. And yes, then you can face the temptation. And yes, then you can face the tempters. By, great, by the grace of God and through the, the ordinary means of Scripture, you can win in the field of battle, but only because you won the battle already. Because you, only because you won, won the war already, and the Spirit of Christ now indwells you. So it, you see, it's not so much about knowing the right verses. It is about the Spirit of God inhabiting you, having been regenerated, having been made a new creation. It is in His strength. And if you are not in Christ, how will you face the tempter? How will you face death without a, a Savior like He is? Oh, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, the, the answer is clear. For both of those categories of people, whether you're in Adam, certainly is true for you. Whether you are in Christ, it is nonetheless true. The only appropriate response upon the knowledge, the duty of who Christ is, the duty of everyone who hears about the gospel is to embrace him. To embrace Christ, who is the second Adam, ushering in a new creation. To embrace Christ, who is the true Israel, performing a spiritual exodus for his people. To embrace Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. To embrace Christ, the victorious Lion of the tribe of Judah, who defeated Satan on our behalf. To embrace Christ, our great high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies with the blood sacrifice of his own and now ever lives as our advocate, as our intercessor. To embrace him as our all in 